Last week, we took a look at uh, the Song of Envy. And you may remember, we heard in the words the songwriter shared with us about sometimes it's tough to see the cheaters prosper. But at the end of the day, if God is good, and the songwriter said he believes that God is, then God is good to be near. This week, we take a look at the Song of Regret. Now, first, uh, to move us in there, a true story. Uh, about five years ago, uh, actually five years ago, uh, come the end of this of July, exactly, Kristen, my wife and I, uh, have been married for um, one year at that point. And just some background information, when we got married for that first year, I mean, it was rough. Uh, we were both uh, still students. I was going to seminary the next year. Kristen, one year in, was on the full-time job hunt. We both had part-time jobs. And we, like 90% of our fights were about money, and they were all like knock-down, drag-out fights. I remember riding my moped before mopeds were cool. <laughs> with my basket of dirty clothes between my feet, on my way to the laundromat after arguing what those quarters were earmarked for. I mean, knock down, drag out fights. Now, I remember just before that first anniversary, and I quote, let's not do anything for our anniversary this year. Some of you had made the same mistake. I can hear that. Or you're married to people who made that mistake. <laughs> My naive self at the time, I thought, yes, we're not doing anything that year on July 29, 2006. I got a, a very inexpensively made, um, yet extremely thoughtful homemade card. As I'm reading through the words that Kristen took time to write, knowing I have nothing, wondering if she still means these things after she realizes I have nothing, a song begins to play in the back of my mind. A song that I would later identify as the song of regret. Last week when we heard about the songwriter writing about envy, we said we don't know anything about him. Yet at the same time, it seems like we know everything about him because we've been in his shoes one or two times in the past. This week is different. This week, we not only know who it is that wrote the song, we know a ton about him. We know the words of the song of regret well. Psalm 51 is what we're going to be turning to. But just for a moment, what I didn't include on the back of the worship flow sheet today is an inscription that you might find in most of the Bibles. I didn't include it because I think it is like the understatement of the century. And I thought, I'm just going to tell you about it rather than just have you read it and, and give away some of the tension. The psalm was written. The, the inscription says something along the lines of when the prophet Nathan confronted David. The back history to that is that David was a king in Israel, and one time he's up at the top uh, on his rooftop scanning over the skyline of Jerusalem. And I can only imagine that he's thinking to himself, looking it all over, it's all mine, it's all mine, it's all mine. Not having a history of 
of being a, a, like a voyeur or a peeping time, he can't help but see in one of those windows, and there's a woman uh, getting ready to take a bath. Mistake number one is he just watches to see how this unfolds. And as this is going on in the back of his mind, it's all mine, it's all mine, it's all mine. He starts to believe it. Never mind, um, they're not married. She is in a committed relationship, married to a guy by the name of Uriah, who's on deployment right now in David's army. He starts to believe himself when he says, it's all mine. And it consumes him. He calls for her, takes her as his own. Realizing what he's done. Realizing, too, for us today, things then weren't all that different than the way they are now. There were just fewer newspapers, reporters, and tabloids around. Fearing this getting out, he decides to to take action. um, Because he has to. Because in nine months from now, uh, action will be taken for him. He calls Uriah back uh, from, the, uh, from the front, it talks to him for a little bit and says, uh, this is your opportunity. Take a weekend. Go home. Be with your wife. Uriah, in this case, being twice the man David is, says, no, 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 no. My brothers are on the front line right now. I will not leave them. You call me back to be home with my wife. I cannot do that. He sleeps on the doorstep of the palace until David finally sends him back. After realizing the plan is foiled, David orders him not just back to where he was, but this time in the front of where he was, knowing full well what's going to happen once the army engages in their next battle he makes sure that Uriah doesn't make it out. And then takes the woman, Bathsheba was her name, as his wife. Just after that, David thinks to himself, okay, uh, plan accomplished. I made it. There's a prophet by the name of Nathan who, who comes to David after that and says, tell you a story. There's two guys. Uh, there's a rich guy and there's a poor guy. The rich guy has uh, flocks, herds, sheep, cattle. He's got it all. There's a poor guy who's got almost nothing. <laughs> They've got one sheep. And it's not a sheep that they're fattening up for me someday. This is like day to day they're getting milk from it. They spend time with the sheep. It's in their home. They... Uh, They eat with the sheep. They sleep with the sheep. It isn't just uh, a commodity. This thing is a pet for them. Rich guy holds a party. Invites some friends into town. He doesn't want to use one of his own, so he takes the poor man's sheep. Nathan steps back and he says, David, how do you feel about that? I mean, this happened like in your kingdom, right under your nose. What do you think about that? David says, may his blood be on the rich man's head. May he get what's coming to him. Nathan essentially says, I know about Bathsheba. I know about the woman you saw bathing. I know about what happened to Uriah. I know the whole thing. Blood's on your head now. 
as it's recorded in 2 Samuel 10 through 12. The next line is just something like David saying, I've sinned against God. He goes away and he writes down the words to the song that's playing in the back of his mind, the song of regret. He writes down Psalm 51. Let's read the first four verses. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassions. Blot out my transgressions, wash away my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and have done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict, and justified when you judge. We have the songs of regret playing in our own lives. I mean, at times, we have been the David in the situation. Maybe not to the extent that he has, or possibly, but we've definitely been the one who has not gotten the card or not gotten the gift. We definitely have all been the one who's sitting by and saying, if I could go back, everything would be different. And now, writing down the words of the song of regret. I want to like point a few things out. But before we do, let's personalize it just a little. Um, friends, whole group of friends. Um, there's guys, there's girls, uh, 15 people maybe. Everybody's uh, just been friends for a long time, high school, college, etc. They spend a ton of time with each other. Eventually, two of them start a relationship. I mean, it's almost inevitable. They go off, and weeks become months, and now nobody sees them anymore. The group is a little bit miffed, a little angry about the whole deal. Nobody sees them for six, eight months on end. At the end of that, there's an email that gets sent out to the group of friends. Is from her saying, hey, I know things have been awkward. I know I haven't made time for you guys, but I just want to let you know, we broke up. And I'd like to be friends again. <laughs> Reading this thing over, you're like, you've got to be kidding me. She just thinks like, snap her fingers, write an email, and everything is fine. Clicking forward, writing down your thoughts, sending it on to another friend. Five seconds after send is pushed. You didn't hit forward. You hit reply all. And the song starts playing. If only I could go back, everything would be different. No matter what the situation, you will need the right words to use. You will need the language of regret. Sometimes it's called confession. Other times it's called penitence. Whatever it is, here are some tools that David offers to the words of the song of regret. If you have a pen with you, we're going to do this like old-fashioned Bible study time. Uh, Circle in verse number one, transgressions. Circle in verse two, iniquity. Also in verse two, sin. In verse four, evil. This is like your feel-good sermon of the day. (laughs) 
All right, uh, transgressions, iniquity, sin, and evil. Some of you are aware already. If you're not, I will fill you in. The Old Testament was not written in English a long time before. When David is writing this down, he's using a language called Hebrew. And you might think, based on the English words that are used here, is that, hey, it's a song. Songs are kind of poetry. The translators are basically just running through it and just making it sound different so it doesn't sound quite so repetitive. Not true. David uh, uses careful words to what he's saying. And every time he's talking about what you might think is the same thing, he's actually using four different words to describe this. Four different words to nuance the situation just so to, to fully encapsulate, to fully convey just how bad, just how regretful he is. The first one that he uses is uh, transgressions, not used so often anymore. Some of you go to like uh, Easter dinner or Christmas or something like that, and you're with um, friends and family members, you're with people that you don't normally see, uh, haven't seen in a long time. Somebody suggests before the meal, let's say the Lord's Prayer together. And as you're going through, you realize halfway into it, there's this hiccup. Some of you know what I'm talking about. When it's like saying, do I say debts? Do I say trespasses? We're talking about sins, right? And, and like, w- what's the next line here? And everybody says something different. They kind of laugh and the whole thing breaks down. And they get back together for amen. <laughs> and then eat. I, I submit to you, trespasses is an excellent word to use. Um, we don't often hear it described, but I think it's something we don't want to lose. What the word that's used here is uh, uh, the language that David was using. It's called pesha. It's called uh, tr- transgressions, also trespasses. If you're still taking notes along, a circle of transgression next to it, write uh, stepping where you don't belong. <laughs> Walking off the path, write down trespasses, something along those lines. In the email situation that I said before about hitting reply all, this is injecting yourself into a situation where you don't belong. You don't have the right to say to this person, can you believe what they've done to me? You don't have the right to talk poorly about somebody behind their back. You're putting yourself into a situation where you don't belong. Uh, First one, transgressions, pesha, trespasses. The next one, iniquity. Definitely a word that's not used very often anymore. Uh, Iniquity, the language that he's using, aion, it's uh, it's guilt. This one's kind of a a big one. It's at least lasting. It has that staying power to it. Uh, Sometimes, okay, all the time, after a mistake has been made, after you're forced whether it's voluntary or not, you're forced to open up that drawer labeled wrongs and you're able to, you have to like put out exactly what the wrongs are and put a name on them. The first one, like I said, trespassing, stepping where you didn't belong. The next one is a guilt. Hopefully for all of us, a natural reaction to messing up, wronging somebody in some way is feeling badly about it afterward. Guilt, in one sense, at least the feeling, is kind of a natural reaction. But there's something natural that just sort of happens whether you want it to or not, especially in that email situation that I said. Because I I would bet, if I were a 
betting person, that after the email goes out, and after some more email, phone calls get made, coffee is drank, conversations are had, I would bet at the end of the day, you're going to end up minus one friend. Or if you don't lose the friend, you're probably going to end up minus one good friend. In a sense, the natural result of the actions of, of that wrong has certain implications. Depending on our view of the world, we could go in one direction and say that this is God punishing us for the wrongs that we could do, that we do. Or, depending on your view of the world, you could go in another direction and say, this is just what happens when friends hurt each other, when anybody hurts someone else. The idea of this word that David uses here, iniquity or guilt, is that these two are not so different, but are actually together. They're actually very, very similar is that the guilt that we feel and the natural results of the actions that we do when we hurt one another are simply how God made the world. And in an odd way, it's almost like a, like a grace-filled kind of way he made the world. Because if this weren't the natural reaction of what happens in the world, this sort of thing would just keep on happening and happening and happening. So uh, transgressions, injecting yourself where you didn't belong, the guilt, the natural, um, the natural reaction or the natural outcome of what happens. Uh, sin is another one of those that just like, eh, you know, you hear it on the news or something. Usually it's some kind of fanatic talking and you don't really want to go there. Uh, David uses the word here and we're going to nuance it compared to all the other ones because he takes time to nuance it compared to the other ones. Um, the word that he uses is uh, chatat. Kind of a fun one to say with the back of the throat. We don't get to do that too often in English. But chatat is a sin. It's a failing to measure up. Now, compare this one especially um, to the uh, trespasses one. Trespasses is injecting yourself where you don't belong or stepping off the path. Chatat, sin, is missing the mark or failing to measure up. In the email example that I said, there's a certain expectation on all of us of being a friend or being a good friend. There's an expectation that you don't talk behind someone else's back. There's an expectation that you are nice to each other, at least when you should be nice. The hatat, the sin that's happening then, is failing to be the good friend that you're supposed to be. Failing to be the good husband, son, daughter, mother that you're supposed to be. And the last one is evil. Verse 4, I believe it is. Um, Again, the nuance here. Um, he uses the word uh, ra, but <laughs> interesting thing about this word um, is that it's used both in like a spiritual context and also a secular context. 
So, I mean, you get in your car in the morning, and you're already five minutes late, and it makes a horrible noise, and it turns over and turns over, sputters and dies. There's a sense in which the car is broken. It's busted. You could say it's injured. It's not working like it's supposed to work. It's raw. We don't think about that all that often, about like a car being evil. But again, there's less distinction between the spiritual or the secular. Some of you are laughing with the idea of a car being evil. You maybe have driven one of those before. (laughs) Now you have some language to use. (laughs) The language of regret, the day you bought it. (laughs) There's a sense in which an inanimate object like a car can be broken. It's injured. It's busted. There's a sense in which a relationship can be broken, busted, and injured, just not working like it should with friends over an email, or in this case, as David is exploring, between him and God. Something happened, and it's just not functioning like it should. It's broken, it's busted, it's injured. The language of regret. And then in verse 5, he builds on that. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. David, in opening up the drawer labeled wrongs and laying out the four files, transgressions, evil, sin, guilt, laying them all out and saying, let's just get something straight. I'm offering all of this. I've really messed up. And and he's trying to fully appreciate the scope of what he's done. And he's saying, okay, this isn't just something that happened. This is something that happens. I didn't just lie. I am a liar. What happens to a lot of us go back to the card thing again, uh, is that we immediately start trying to downplay it. But we said we weren't doing anything, but we don't have any money. But you have no right to be as mad as you think that you are right now. It's really not that big of a deal. How's that working out for you? (laughs) We don't have the right as the offending party, as the one who did something wrong, we don't have the right to minimize what happened. David is saying, okay, knowing that, not trying to deny how wrong this was, blame somebody else for what happened, or minimizing how much damage is done. He's laying it out there and saying, listen, this just didn't happen. It happens. I have to say, there's not just something wrong with what I did. There's something wrong with me. And I'm not trying to get out of it. In the song that he's writing, there's almost like this descent into into a, a pit, and it stinks. There's just no other way around it. As he's laying out everything, and he's using the imagery of a a stained cloth or or a dirty piece of robe or something like that, and he's saying, I need to be washed. This stinks. He starts to set up two worlds. He starts to describe the world that is, 
the world that's raw, that's broken, that's injured, the world that's messed up, and his role in playing that by stepping off the path, by failing to measure up. The world that is and the world that could be. I want to read for you the next portion in the Psalm 6 to 12. Enjoy the imagery. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop, a kind of flower, and I'll be clean. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you've crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sin. Blot away my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. It's got a different sound to it than the first four verses, first five verses, doesn't it? He, can, he turns a corner a third of the way through here and says, this is the world that is my role that I've played in it, and it stinks. But it can be better. The words that he uses, cleanse me with hyssop, I think is a good one. The uh, grocery store, I believe, was all out of hyssop, but uh, we'll use this instead. Um, Hyssop was used oftentimes in the Old Testament because it smelled good. It was nice. You could kind of crush the petals in your hand, and no matter how much it stinks before, it comes out smelling like roses, (laughs) we'll say, or hyssop in this case. Um, It was a blue flower. You know, Family Fair doesn't really have hyssop around too much. Uh, The image... That he uses here. It's to say, God, I have created a world that stinks. But because I've harmed you so badly, you can make this better again. And so he says, wash me, cleanse me. Some of this should sound like the baptisms that we do here on Sundays. To say, my role in all of this is to create a world that stinks. He describes that accurately, and then he says, you're the one who can fix it. You're the one who can wash that away. But on on one hand, you're like, come on, man. Are you serious? After what you have just done, you come out of this saying, okay, I have done so wrong but make me clean again. Ah, first line in this song, have mercy on me, God. It's like, who is he to think that he has the right to say something like that? You almost think there's like this latent arrogance just beneath the surface that says, really, man, you're going to try to pull this. If you were anybody else except for the king, would you even try? Is this any different than looking over at your city and saying, it's all mine, it's all mine, it's all mine? Isn't just like that's flipped around a little and say, God, you're the one. You can, you can make me you know, do whatever I want. And then on the other end, come out smelling like roses again. 
The last um, heading that I put in here, number three, is confidence. Let's just get something straight here. It's confidence um, not in himself, but confidence in God. He says, God, you have the unfailing love. God, you are the one who washes away the guilt, the sin. God, you are the one who cleanses with hyssop. When a baptism happens, and whoever it is, whether me or somebody else, puts the water over and he say, they are not the one who wash themselves. It is always God who washes away the sin, the guilt. Crucial we understand that. It's not the confidence of David. It's the confidence that David has in God's mercy. He says, I've included verse 13 and 17 on here. I'll teach transgressors your ways. Sinners will turn back to you. My sacrifice, God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. Like we heard last week, David knows a thing or two about God. He knows that no matter how much he messes up, screws up, fouls up, trips up, and downright just hurts people, including himself, he knows that at the end of the line, there is a God whose mercy is infinite, whose love is unfailing. David just trusted this. He had to walk through a very dark place to get there. Let's not think for a minute that he just snaps his finger and everything is better again. He takes each folder out and lays it out and says, this is exactly how I've gone wrong who I've hurt. And this isn't just something that happened. It's something that happens. And only by going to that very dark place does he come out and and have the boldness to say, but God, you are merciful, right? Your unfailing love is true, right? I will tell people about this. My heart is broken, verse 17. But you can put it back together if you have the pieces. The advantage that we have over David is that we have seen this love in action. We celebrate it every time we come here in this place. We celebrate it week in and week out, whether here or in our cars or at home. We think of the real love, grace, and mercy that was embodied in Jesus Christ, our Lord. When he gets his hands dirty, goes to a dark place, the cross, dies. And before the women come back to rub the fragrances and the burial scents on him, he rises clean, And to which I might add, smelling like roses. That's the grace and mercy he offers us. Take it. 
ask for it. Let's pray together.